0: You're listening to The LaunchCast, the podcast about leadership, business, life, and growth with me, your host, George Andriopoulos.
1: It's like food for your ears. At this time, I'm going to ask that you fasten your seatbelts. Launch sequence. Launch sequence activated. Launch sequence activated. Five, four, three. Two, one. Woo!
0: Hey, hey, everybody! Welcome to the Launchcast. God, I love this music. Who else got a theme song out there? Get at me, podcast people! Come on episode 105 entitled a christmas carol we are putting it down today on your favorite podcast in the planet and i am in a talkative mood we're talking leadership we're talking business we're talking growth and we're talking life and we are doing it all because it's my show let's hit that chorus Love that song. We have a very special guest with us today. Thank you so much for being here.
2: My honor. I'm psyched. I'm like This is kind of like a marriage of all my TV years, lacing in a little bit of where it all started in radio. So I like this. Yeah,
0: this is great. But first, I want to introduce my co-host today. My guest co-host today is my good friend, Jennifer Muccioli. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Jen. Jen and I have been friends and colleagues for for quite a while now and I'm going to pull up her bio here. Jennifer is a director of communications at KPMG. She is my co-producer at TEDx Farmingdale. And the co-host of the upcoming podcast, Sanity is Overrated. Welcome, Jen.
1: Thank you. (laughs) This is exciting. What a day to be your special co-host.
0: Thank you for being here. I'm so excited to have everybody here. I want to dive in because this is a really important episode. We're going to be talking about a lot of great stuff, so let's do this. My guest today, Carol Silva, who needs no intro, but I'm going to do one anyway. Carol Silva is the Emmy Award winning, three-time Emmy Award winning. Morning and Daytime edition anchor at News 12 Long Island, or at least she was before she retired recently. News 12 Long Island, America's first 24-hour regional news network. She is a storyteller, a motivational speaker, and a host. She graduated and received an honorary doctorate from NYIT right here on Long Island. I have a list of awards here. It's insane, this list of awards. Three Emmy Awards, 30 New York State Associated Press Awards, Regional Cable Ace Press Club, Women of Distinction, Top 50 Women on Long Island, the Juliet Lowe Award from the Girl Scouts, Girl Scouts of America Highest Adult Award. The list goes on and on. Recently inducted into the Long Island Journalism Hall of Fame. This is, it's an incredible career spanning nearly five years decades.
2: Can I I add one? Please. Um, In December also, December 6th, the Emmy Award people, Natus, the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, inducted me into their silver circle. The silver circle. Which is for 25 years of service in television, although I've had 44 in the business My husband still laughs at me because as soon as I saw the silver circle, I was so touched. I couldn't believe it. It's not the kind of thing you apply for. It's something that they just give you. I have to admit, though, as soon as I saw silver circle, I said, what would it take to get to gold? And then it would take getting up at 2.15 in the morning for another six or so years. And I said, no, thanks. Was there any thought of that happening? (laughs) Uh, No, 2.15 in the morning got to be a little earlier all the time. Yeah, I'm sure it
0: did. I'm sure it did. The title of this episode, A Christmas Carol. So I was really thinking about it. I try and do these kitschy little titles. I want to make them fun. And I thought of this one after I watched another episode of Crash Caroling. Oh, that you yeah. guys do on News 12, which is so much fun. This year, you were surprised. Elisa uh-huh. and Elizabeth uh, and Rich, they took you to Holy Trinity High School.
2: Yes. yes. And yes. the choir sang to me.
0: Yeah. That's incredible. That's the alma mater incredible. of Carol and Jennifer both. Yeah.
2: Amen. (laughs) HT, HS. I should should explain what crash caroling is. Normally what we do is, and I speak very much in the present tense at News 12 because that is still so much my family. And I mean, I still have to go back and clean out my office and hang around and do things with them anyway. Um, But it's where we find people who could really use some cheer. Yeah. And we've gone from the VA hospital in Northport to schools for special needs kids. Uh, one year, the Glencove Police Department wrote to us and said they'd like a visit. And we thought, you know what? For our men and women in blue, let's go do sure. that. So we normally just go and we pound down the door. We come in and we start to sing, some of us better than others. Erin right. Colton, notoriously bad. Elizabeth has a great <laughs> voice and the rest <laughs> of us fall somewhere in between. And um, so that's, that's what crash caroling is. But this year they decided because it was gonna be my last formal year of crash caroling that they would take me to places that would be special to me, including our alma mater, Jennifer Holy Trinity. Yes. Right,
0: right, and you also visited the Northwell
2: Monter Cancer Center, right? We did, the place where those doctors have saved my life, so <laughs> if anything, if anybody, they deserved a real holiday cheer. They, they how, absolutely deserve it. How emotional
1: was that for you? Describe to us what you felt like being crash caroled.
2: Um, I knew in advance that I I was going to be Elizabeth's victim, essentially, (laughs) her production victim. What I didn't know was that she—I hope Timmy's not listening. Timmy's eight years old, her son. She took his little elf glasses and she taped them she over, so that, I couldn't yeah. see anything. I didn't know where we were going. Brian Gigaleski is our photographer, our feature photographer. He does all the special things in the morning that we do. And he's phenomenal, and he was kind of lying, I think. Okay, we're going to go left. Oh, look, we're on the highway. Oh, look. <laughs> <laughs> because I was literally blindfolded the entire time. When I went right. to Holy Trinity, aside from almost tripping when I got out of the car, because I couldn't see where I was, all and my right. toe hit the curb as I got out, um, we parked illegally, Jennifer, right in front of the school where you're not uh, allowed to where park. We are not allowed to park. That's where we parked. Okay. It felt so great. Okay. So and nobody great. said curb there. Watch no, that curb. No, none of that. But rule breakers. <laughs> we okay. were rule breakers. And when I went in and they just started singing, I mean, they're just, they're such a powerful art school also. So that was beautiful. Sure. And then when they took me to Monter to thank those doctors, how do you thank somebody for saving your life? Yeah. So exactly. emotional, phenomenal. It was, it was just, it was. A moment in life I'll never forget.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, A spark moment, a spark moment. That's something that I talk about on this show a lot. So, you know, along my journey as as a thought leader, as just a a a man, a father, a husband, I've discovered these moments in life that I like to call spark moments, and they're these these moments that you you look back on, and whether you're in the moment or not, you kind of realize, yeah, this is this is one of those mental snapshots. This is a moment that will be for some reason or another, pivotal in my life. And some of them are those reflective moments like this one, Mm -hmm. and some of them are those moments where there's really a change that sparks. And we'll, we'll get to talk about that. I wanna jump right in and ask the first question that we ask of all our guests here. Carol, are you a leader?
2: I am a leader, but I didn't start out to be a leader. It's interesting, I look back, my dad was in the military for 20 years. I grew up with a lot of other military families, never in military housing, not over in Mitchell Field back in the day, although we had the option, or in Uniondale, we had the option. My parents went for a Levitt House, the third level of military housing on Long Island. So we lived in a Levitt House in Hicksville, backed into Stewart Avenue. I was five houses away from Holy Trinity. And, And we grew up there. And I just, Describe it as being part of a tribe. Three kids born in three years with my dad in the military, um, U.S. Naval Corpsman, 1st Marine Division, Okinawa, Iwo Jima, wow. South Pacific for years and years. Saw the worst of the worst. Ended up at St. Albans Naval Hospital at one point. And my mom and her sisters were in the canteen, kind of like the USO. That's where they met. Wow. there, Wow. And they ended up getting married. They lived in St. Albans for the first year. We moved to Long Island. I was in Hicksville from the time that I was 13 months old. So the first thing that I learned was how to function in a tribe, Mm -hmm. how to do for other people. My dad is Mexican. His relatives are all in California, some in Mexico, in fact. His sister ended up moving back to Mexico. And so I grew up really with my Irish-American Fitzsimons family. I still have the Fitzsimons family reunion at my home Uh every year, which is fabulous. Um, So I grew up learning how to do for others, and somewhere along the way, I think that the morals and the ethics and the optimism of my parents was the thing that gave me the attitude that I had, certainly helped with the success that I've had, the career success that I've had, and I became a leader because other people started to watch what I was doing, and I never realized how much of a leader until this last year, yeah. until my retirement, when I look at the things that people said, by the way, retiring from News 12 and getting up at 2.15 in the morning, I have not retired from life by any stretch of the imagination. Um, in fact, you're on my first stop on what's next. Oh, I'm so This happy. is my How very first stop on what's honored. next. How well, this honored. is kind of a challenge. You know, okay, we're going to ask you anything about your life. Yeah. Okay. I'm in. I'm yeah. ready. I'm and ready
0: to try this. That's really that's really the funny thing about this. Um I do a lot of research when I when I do these interviews and I'm I'm still new at it, but I'm really enjoying diving into leadership and what that means for for a variety of people we've had a musician we had mike del judas from billy Love. jones band yeah, yeah unbelievable guy um we've had trisha brooke award-winning director we've had a, a first lieutenant from the u.s army last week we had matt Campo, the ceo of ronald mcdonald house long island and so we're getting a, a look into the minds of of leadership in all these different industries and What I love is when I do this research and I really dive back because I wanted to go way back. I wanted to go back to Bond Lane in Hicksville. (laughs) 43 Bond Lane, Hicksville. Yeah, I wanted to go back to Bond Lane and talk about, um, you know, your parents and kind of see... What about your childhood growing up shaped the leader that we see today? You mentioned your father
2: Mexican-American, your mother Irish-American, and you
0: you described them as Ricky and Lucy?
2: Yeah, they were like Ricky and Lucy when we were kids. I mean, my father played the Spanish classical guitar that we still have. It's a slightly smaller guitar, and he used to get up. There were pictures of my parents where my dad would be standing up and singing in the hotels. You know, and he wasn't hired to do that, they would go. That was, you know, the date back yeah. in the day. Yeah, sure. And there he was with the—we um, just watched the movie The Two Popes, Bob and oh. I did, my husband and I, uh, two nights ago. Yeah. And the beginning and the end of it is Besame Mucho. Now, when ah. you're a little kid, you sing songs, right? Mm-hmm. All kids sing songs, and Mary had a little—we all sing Besame Mucho. Yeah. My cousin texted me. Kathleen said, oh, my gosh, look at that, Besame Mucho in the beginning and the end. So, yeah. y- you know, I started to um, I started to answer the question before, and I didn't finish— What I learned from my parents was morals and I learned to never quit. I learned to think about everybody else and just to keep going. I learned not to say a lot of negative things to myself. And then when I was at work, I worked as hard as I could, even when it didn't go well. And it didn't go well in each place along the way, and yet I ended up with 33 years, yeah. 32 of them, the anchor desk at News 12 Long Island. I mean, that doesn't happen. Chuck Scarborough was sitting at the next table to me at the Silver Circle Awards in New York City. Sue Simmons came because David Ushery from NBC was being honored. With 33 years, and honestly, 33 years for a woman in front of a television, we used to say all the time, and it's still true to some degree, that the men were allowed to age gracefully and the mm-hmm. women aged out. Yeah. You aged out. We you got older looking, that. you know, you, you aged out. Mm-hmm. And so by working hard and keeping at it, and I think being moral, and I think growing, I think becoming a better person, that's what's made me a leader. Um, I have heard from so many people, you know, writers of mine. When When it comes to a young writer, you can just change the script that they write. The way that it works is there's a producer who selects the stories overnight and writes a good number of them, and then we have a couple of writers on each show. And the writers would write, and you know some of them don't even own houses yet. So their, their perspective on the world isn't completely full. Now, I could just change everything, or I could go back and work with each one of them every day. And that probably was not their favorite thing at the time, But it turns out Mike Fitzsimmons, who became the assistant news director at NBC, said to me one day, I wouldn't have gotten there without you. Jesse Masters is now working at CBS Network right now. He left within the past six months. My last day on the air, he took that day so that he could be with me and said, I wouldn't have been there if it hadn't been. And they did not love when I said, listen, this is how we do it, this is why we do it, the way we do it. And I think that was so key to my leadership. And over time, the difference from my 20s, I started in the business at 20 at WBAB, to where I ended at a proud 65, I've become a nicer person, too. Yeah. Right. And so my leadership, my, my leadership power, I don't mean force over other people, but my leadership power has increased with my kindness and my empathy and my understanding. Also having kids has done that for me. Sure. Because I always think about uh, well, how would I want somebody treating my sons, right. my daughter, especially in the beginning on a new job. How does it feel for you to hear
1: from Mike and others how impactful you were to their career? I mean, did you did you know it at the time? How does that feel when he emails or calls you or or texts you and say, "It's because of you that I'm where I am today."
2: You know, it, you know a little bit of it along the way, but I never, ever had any perspective like I do now in the rearview mirror, but it wasn't even a rearview mirror. I mean, I turned around and looked back Well, I had the little detour that we talked about, right? Two and a half months. Yeah. That I was diagnosed September 18th with Stage Four cancer. And I said,, all, and, and I had already announced in the end of May that I was going to be retiring. Because while I'm young enough and strong enough and healthy enough, I said in May, young enough, strong enough, and healthy enough to go do something else, it's time for me to expand. And I I do so much talking in schools and and to school kids and to women's groups. And I have more to say from everything that I've collected in the life that I have led. So I had the opportunity, You, you threatened to retire, or you threatened to die, Mm -hmm. and that was basically it. People came out of the woodwork. If I tell you I've gotten thousands and thousands and thousands of letters and calls and messages about we're thinking of you, we're praying for you, but also this is what you did for me. So I didn't have this perspective. And what the pity is, is that so many of us deserve it. Yeah. I got it because I'm on television. Yeah. And I got it because I had the ability to publicly touch more people, but we all deserve this. I said in the last four months since my diagnosis, I'm living my eulogy. I am living my living eulogy right now, and it's awesome. And it reminds me how important it is for us to turn around to the people who've done something right in our lives, even just be nice to us in the day. You know, even the woman at the counter in Macy's, the, you know, guy at at the car wash in 7-Eleven, you know, who holds the door for you, to actually take that moment, take that one moment and pause and turn around and thank somebody and thank them specifically. Thank you, that was kind. Thank you you know what, I, I was a little overwhelmed right now and you did this for me. Thank them specifically. And every time you do that, it's like you plant a seed and you get back twice as much. Right? Yep. That's why my life and my heart and my soul have exploded. Yeah. And I, I, think,
0: I think that reflection is so important in leadership. I think that this is something I've always struggled with where when you get the accolades, you get people coming out of the woodworks and saying you helped me or you're doing a good job. It's tough for me now, and we talked about this a little bit before, the person that I used to be versus the person I am now, and that, that struggle of keeping that person at bay, making sure they don't come back. For me, it's always been very tough to hear that in recent years. Because um, you don't want to feed your ego? you want to make sure that what you're doing is benevolent. You don't want to feed that ego. You want to make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. And look, in what I do, and not not as much as you being a public figure, but I try and be a public figure out there. I'm trying to be a thought leader. And so I don't want people thinking I do this for the accolades. But when they do tell you, when you get that feedback and, and you're able to reflect on it, it's, it's really helpful for the soul just to know that you made that
2: difference. and, and, you know, there's a place in the Bible where it talks about humility being honest. And that's the thing. When you can be honest, my, my son, love him, but he's a 25-year-old guy. And something will happen, and his comment is, ego, mom, ego. I mean, always, <laughs> since he was a teenager, which is okay for the ego check. But I try to turn around and tell him, you know what? When I can be honest and hear that I've done well, it makes me stronger and then I can do more. So I don't see it as speeding my ego. I believe that we are given the gifts that we're given. Not so we can be the most popular kid in school, the best athlete, the best, you know, the most good looking, best looking kid in school. That's not why we're given gifts. We're given gifts because we're supposed to use them. Mm -hmm. that's why. Because if you're the most popular kid in school, then you have the number one responsibility to find at least one kid a day, a week, even a month, and make sure that they have a place to sit at the lunch table. Make sure that they at least have somebody that they can talk to in the library when you're not supposed to be talking, but you know, ask for help. That we're given those gifts because we're supposed to use them for good. And so there are two parts for that. i I fully accept that. I fully accept that. Thank you. Sometimes I'll even say to people, you know, I've heard a lot, you've made a difference in my life. You really have helped. And I turn around and I say, do you mind if I ask you how? Hmm. And it's not so that I can feel better. Good Lord, I don't know that I could feel any better about myself right now. But I want to know what did I do that worked? I want to remember to do that again. Or what was happening at that point in my life? Could I have done that better? whatever it is, it's important to hear those things. And nobody has said to me, ego mom, except Shane in all of that, (laughs) you know, in in that time. So I, I I think it's important and I think it's so valuable. And one of the mistakes in business and especially in entertainment is, and it may be an older management idea, let's not feed their egos because they're going to want more money. But, if you don't elevate your human resource right. the humans that they are they will never no matter what your business is give you the best right. and i've had people at work tell me for years i'll go to you know reporters or writers and say you know what you did a really great job on this today you did it. if it bounces off my head i go and i've had people say i'd love that kind of feedback on a regular basis yeah. Yeah. you know not every quarter once a year three times a year I think that that is a failing of management in any business whatsoever that, listen, managers are busy. I mean, in any day and age, and especially in this day and age, and we're all doing more with less, including our managers. But for managers to be able to do that, to realize that when they see that somebody who's worked their cash register or marketed that product, sold that plan, when somebody's done a good job, to actually go and take Less than 60 seconds out of the day and say, that was a great thing you did. And it was a great thing because three years ago you weren't doing that. Look at how much you've grown. Or that was good for the business. You've added business stability. Or that was just kind. And and that is a leadership failing. And that's something I did well. And that's something I learned from my father. I
1: think that's so important. Seizing that moment out of every ordinary day just to say to someone, You've impacted my life. You're doing a great job. I felt you're valued because of the following reasons. It's just so important. It fuels humanity. It makes us more mindful. Oh and it really brings us together because your tribe grows as you do that. Oh, my gosh. Your tribe yeah. grows. And you never know when you need to rely on that tribe to help you through other times in your life. Amen. And by, the, by you touching people personally... There, there's a community behind you, ready to rally around you when you need it most. And I know you know a thing or two about that.
0: Yeah, and, and, and that, that's the biggest difference for me and what I've discovered over the years of, of running a company and managing people. There's a big difference between managing somebody and leading somebody. Mm-hmm. Huge, huge difference. And when you consider that not only are they a vital part of the machine, But that idea of human capital, right, that that these are real people that you're dealing with and real feelings. And so when you lead them in a way where you're empowering somebody and people are part of that team, they're vital to the success of an organization or a team, that's leadership. That's not managing. That's leadership.
2: And then you get the best out of them. And so your business does better. I mean, if you need to start with quote-unquote selfish motivation, it benefits the business. Yeah, absolutely. If for nothing else. Absolutely.
0: Mm. So I want to touch on real quick, you mentioned before, touched on faith a little bit. So growing up on Long Island, you know, as we all did, we're both Dalers, Jennifer and I, and, and you're from Hicksville. You know, growing up on Long Island. Dalers meaning uh, farming Farmingdale. For those of you who are not <laughs> dalers. <laughs> yeah. Listen, if you don't know what a daler is.
2: <laughs> uh, I'm here to translate <laughs> every story <laughs> from taxes care. to dalers. You're welcome.
0: And so growing up on Long Island, you, as we mentioned, went to Holy Trinity High School as did yes. Jennifer. Yes. I want to talk about, briefly, I want to talk about that and your faith growing up. Because I know you've mentioned this, not just today, but in interviews that I've watched uh, recently. I want to talk about what kind of role faith played in your life growing up. And then we'll, later on, we'll get to what, what kind of role it's played now.
2: Well, I could tell you that my mother, who went to Mass every morning, um, told me once, people ask me why I go to Mass every morning. And I tell them, if you had a daughter like Carol, you'd go to Mass every morning, too. But I don't think that's <laughs> what it you was. <laughs> you know, my disclaimer at the front is, you don't have to be Catholic. I don't care what you are. We all have A spiritual side to us Mm -hmm. and mine God is what I believe exists in some form not some guy up in the sky but something certainly greater than I exists and that greater being decided that I would be born into a Catholic family and so I was but the first place that I learned what it is to be Catholic or a person of faith is by watching my mother by watching her be kind to other people, be thoughtful of what other people need before you think of yourself. Um, That that was the first part of my faith. And, And faith is a living thing. It's your guidance along the way. And if you pay enough attention to your guidance, and it's the only thing that you see modeled for you. It is the way that you live. And I live. I'm one of three kids. My older brother's 11 months older. The younger is 22 months younger. When I was a kid in that military house in Hicksville, we slept in the same bedroom until I was six years old. All three of us slept in the same bedroom. And you learn how to think about other people. That's where faith came from. The image that I grew up with was image of a God. Connor, my daughter... I remember her saying when she was little that God was a she. And we said, well, that's good too. That works for me to this, you know, that works with for me until this day. Where is faith? The, those building blocks that my parents put out there for us, that we would go to church. Church is a time of reflection for me still. It's a place where I go and I close my eyes and I listen to the music and I think and, and the busyness stops. That's some of the power of it. It's also the power of the community. Connor and Shane both sang in the choir at church at the 10 o'clock mass. That is still our community. Those are still—we all have kids in our 20s now, but that's where we go still as parents because that is our community and a church community, a synagogue community, you know, a a temple community, a mosque community, whatever community is, that's a good thing, a place where people are going to do good. And that faith reminds me that I'm not alone, that I— owe it to others, to think of others, to do for others, faith is everything to me. It really is. And, you know, I had a little detour, yeah. um, you know, September through December. And I was diagnosed with stage four cancer on September 18th. And as my doctor, Dr. Ramu at Mantra uh, Cancer Center at Northwell, when she was giving me the diagnosis with her PA, Kira Barnaby, it was not four seconds later that in my head I heard, thank you God for healing me. The words were there. The words were present. My husband says to me, you have great faith. Why don't I have that faith? Well, the other thing that I do is what my parents gave me, and then they sent us to Catholic school, Holy Family Grammar School, Holy Trinity High School, I was at University of Dayton for one year when I was in college. And, you know, going, it, it had been a Catholic school and was still essentially a Catholic school. And going, the coolest thing to do during the week was go to 10 o'clock mass on a Sunday night. You mm-hmm. took your shoes off. You crowded. People sat in the aisles barefoot. It was great. You tried to find your shoes when you left. If it was <laughs> winter, it was a little more challenging. You really needed them. But I have always fed myself faithful or optimistic stuff. It's the people I choose to spend my energy on. It is the people I choose to let in the closest to me. It's what I listen to in the radio. I only set a couple of music buttons. After all my rock and roll years in radio, I only set a couple of music buttons in my car. Um, probably a year or two ago, in part because my husband, who is really an audiophile, he listens to everything, loves live music. He probably made enough fun of me, and it was probably peer pressure in my own house. <laughs> but I, I, I love constant reinforcement of what is good. And so it's what I feed my soul all the time, very intentionally, very deliberately. And all of those things combined, here they are. Here they are. And here they manifested when they said, you have stage four cancer. It spread from the tumor in your lung and more than a liter, more than twice this bottle of cancerous fluid around your lung, it spread to 12 tumors in your brain. And I heard that news, and I repeat, the words that went through my head were, thank you God for healing me. And that is the result of how we choose to build life over time. And it doesn't have to be Catholic, but do you choose to build your life in an optimistic, hopeful, helpful way? And if you do, maybe there's a good chance that you'll end up there. And on November 11th, I went back. I, I had a lung surgery, October 2nd, I believe, and then to remove the fluid. The tumor was still there, but they were hoping it would grow with the drug. And then October 8th, the following week, I had three hours of gamma knife radiation, laser radiation on my head. November 11th, one of the doctors told me, I am looking at your MRI now of your brain, your cat skin, your picture of your brain, I cannot find any trace of the first nine tumors, and somebody would have to show me where the other three brain tumors had been to know they ever existed. Incredible. It is great incredible. science. We have the most incredible medical people on Long Island. Yeah. A, a former number two man at Sloan Kettering, Dr. Rich Barakat, is now the head of oncology at Monter, at, at Northwell, and is bringing in now all these people. Now that his first year there is over, the no poaching year is over, he's bringing in the best of the best from around the country, and he's a remarkable man. We have incredible science there. But the doctors keep telling me it's my attitude, too. Yeah, yeah. It is.
1: And you can dial yeah. that back to your childhood when you said, I learned at a very early age not to say negative things to myself. I will
2: not repeat I, negative things to myself. Yeah, I, I tell school groups, I tell my own kids, if somebody came to the door and they said, hey, drink this, it's poison, you'd slam mm-hmm. the door in their face. But why do we let people not only say negative things to us, but then that, – that we can't help if somebody says it. But then we repeat it over and over and over and over again to ourselves. When I, I came from a family that had little or no money – and, you know, you, you sleep in a bedroom with your brothers because there's no money when yeah. you're a kid. When I was in college, when I was at y- University of Dayton, I was working for the chairwoman of the education department. And she had done some great work with, oh, the woman who studied death and dying. She's I forget her name. But she had, she had studied under the woman. So, I know somebody out there is yelling the name of a, everybody knows <laughs> who she is. So I remember her, she was a brilliant woman, the chair of the education department, and she said to me, for every negative thing you ever say to a child, you have to say seven positive things. Now, it's not that we should say, you know what, you should never punch your brother in the face again, but you're a really nice person. I I mean, you know, we make our kids responsible, for, knowledgeable of who they truly are, but let's look for the good and let's reinforce the good as well. And that is what built me to the strength of where I am today. It's incredible. Wow.
0: It is incredible and for me faith within leadership has been so interesting and I love this point of view because throughout the first 5 interviews we've had this is a totally unique point of view in terms of faith. I've always looked at faith. I grew up Greek Orthodox, so very similar. I figured
2: as much. When I tried to learn to spell your name, that was one of the first things I thought of. So
0: very similar to Catholicism in a lot of ways. We are very rooted in our traditions. And so I took that growing up, and I still practice the Greek Orthodox religion, but I took that growing up as whenever I needed something, whenever there was something that I was going through, not not that I was asking for something, but something that I was going through, and it was one of those dire straits moments, or um, just something difficult that I or my family was going through. You look to something, whether it's a god or or whatever. Faith doesn't have to be a person or for somebody. We chatted a little bit about this before the interview, but faith doesn't have to be a person. Faith could just be a belief in something. And within my own leadership, you know, years of doing what I do for a living has taught me and given me a lot of skills, big skill set. But there are still times, you know, running a business, being a business owner, being responsible for other people, taking care of my family, where you get into a situation and you, you go, I don't know what to do next. Mm-hmm. I've exhausted all possibilities and faith for me has become, I step out of the situation and I go, you know what, George, you always figure this out. You always figure this out. Let it happen. And that, that's faith for me within my leadership. And I just trust that whatever's going on, whether it's me or a higher power, is going to help to take me to that next level. And it always works out, every single time.
2: I was driving here today, and I thought, what if this doesn't go well? You know, that kind of entered my mind. Or, or what if there are stumbling blocks in this? Mm-hmm. And I have come to the point, because of my practice, Stephanie Rose, who works with us at News 12, is a yogi. She went to India to be trained as a yogi. I mean, this girl is Fantastic. serious, yeah. love her she talks about a practice of yoga and its mind spirit meditation big meditation i i'm not on i'm not into the meditation yet i have not even begun to master the meditation yet but i have time now nonetheless the practice for me has become so natural and i have to say in particular in the last year where i stopped when i was driving here today and i thought what if I'm not doing a good job of this? You know, like I said, this is my first thing. This is sure. my first step in what's next. What if I haven't done a good job? And I stopped, and I thought for a minute, and I just let God walk in, that God presence, that higher power presence walk in. And that included, you know you've got this. Yeah. You know we've got this. And that was it. Yeah. And I went, phew. And I think that if we all did that, instead of wearing our shoulders, you know, up high we would all relax a lot more. Our shoulders would good. If we gave ourselves that second to pause, to ask whatever higher power, if, if it's just your past experience, times I've done well, things that have worked out before, it makes all the difference absolutely. in the world, and then you can do the big exhale. Yeah. Absolutely,
0: yeah. absolutely. I wanna pause for a minute here to point out something. You mentioned your husband a couple of times. Bob Riley.
2: Yes. <laughs> Hi, posted. Bob. Hi,
1: honey.
0: My wife Carol is perfect. Oh. Wait, next one. I'm not kidding. Not in capital letters, and a heart eye emoji.
2: Ooh. Ah, oh, honey, that's really sweet. Just remember that, because we're going to take a screenshot yes. of that. Now we're going to bring that home. <laughs> that's uh, fabulous. He is Bob. a good man and a great soul. He really is a great man and a great soul. I love this. I love this. I love this.
0: The LaunchCast is sponsored today by the Leadership Experience, a coaching masterclass. Intentional, unconventional, thoughtful leadership from keynote speaker, CEO, nonprofit board member, and TEDx executive producer, George Andriopoulos. Hey, that's me. Guys, the music's getting louder and it's epic, which means this is something you shouldn't miss. Registration opens on December 15th, and we are beginning January 15th. This music is so loud, that means it's amazing. Join us, leadershipexp.com for details. You don't want to miss this. So, Holy Trinity, we talked about, now let's move on to college and, and your career. So, I read a couple of conflicting things. So, this I want to... Um, I want to clarify. So I know you went to NYIT for your mm-hmm. undergrad, and you had that honorary doctorate. Did you also attend Nassau and the University of Dayton? Yeah,
2: I went to Holy Trinity, and when I graduated from Holy Trinity in 1972, um, I applied to uh, Fairfield University. My cousins from Garden City, boys, two boys older than me, two years and three years older, had gone there. Mm-hmm. And I had gone to visit with my friends, and it was We got our licenses. We drove to Fairfield. It was the time of our lives, and I got accepted. It was either the first or second year that they were accepting women, which was fabulous. And I showed my parents the letter, and they said, "That's great. Of course, you can't afford to go there. You know, we don't have that. Dad was in the military for twenty years, so we're still on catch up. You can go to Nassau Community College like your brother." And it wasn't like it, it is today, where we all just say, "Well, let's just add to that student debt." In so many ways, my stumbling blocks have become my stepping stones. So I went to Nassau Community College for two years. I did Kickline for Holy Trinity. I did Kickline in Nassau Community College, so it was kind of my entrance to a great part of the student body there. It was so much fun. I learned a lot. I would say my two best college teachers, the ones who I remember most, two of the three, um, were Bernie Katz, I took three of his four psychology courses. He was amazing. He's a therapist, or I I guess a psychologist from Plainview. Uh, And he was amazing. The first day he walked into class, and he's talking to a bunch of 18-, 19-year-old kids, and he said, you know what? You're crazy. You're crazy. You're crazy. (laughs) And he looked at all of us, and he said, we all have our crazies. And that's how he started. And I thought, I love this guy. So I took him three out of my four semesters, Joe Dundero. Joe taught, he was a phys ed and health teacher, and Joe taught that very controversial course, which was supposed to teach people who are 18, 19, 20 years old about their sexuality, about safe sex, about dis- and it was very controversial. You sure. know, We weren't supposed to talk about that then, right. but Joe was bold, and he did, and, and he was amazing. So I went to Nassau for two years. Then I was trying to decide where to go when it came to the next two years. And my mom was pretty smart. She never had the ability to go to college, but she was so bright. And she said, let's not talk about what you want to do because you probably don't know. Let's talk about what you like. And I said, I love people. Mm-hmm. My kindergarten report card says she loves to talk. So <laughs> I love to talk. Um, I love to write. And she said, "Oh, well, maybe you should be an attorney like Uncle Jim, my godfather. And I said, I don't think so because Uncle Jim talks a lot about all the solitary time that he spends with books and that would make me crazy. So I decided that I would go into public relations. There were not a lot of women in radio and certainly not in television at the time. You know there was Barbara Walters but there were not a lot. So I went, I applied to University of Dayton in Ohio because one of my best friends from high school had ended up there and I thought well I could have fun there. And um, I applied to New York Institute of Technology as a backup Mm -hmm. because I did want to go away. Got accepted to Dayton. I went August. We spent nine days out there having a lot of fun. We were living in the same house together, Joanne and I. And I went to register. Two days before classes started, and they said, Oh, you, you have to be here for three years. And I said, No, I don't. You took all my credits except my two gym credits from Nassau. And they said, No, no, you're missing microeconomics, macroeconomics. Oh, wow. oh boy. And I said, I can't do this. Eek. And I called New York Tech, and I said, Do you still have my spot and my scholarship? And they said, Yes. And I packed up my car and I drove home. Wow. Oh, wow. I was heartbroken. And so I did the first semester of my junior year at New York Tech. And that's where. I had to, as a public relations major in the communications department, I had to take Radio 101, Television 101, Communications Law, all these writing courses. My Radio 101 course was taught by my third favorite college teacher, Neil Martin. And Neil was a disc jockey at WBAB in Babylon. Our final project was a 15-minute radio show. You had to know how to engineer the board. You had to know the law behind it public service announcements, commercials, and you had to write and deliver a five-minute newscast in that. That was my final project. He used to tell me all the time, you're so good, you're so good. Well, New York Tech was 92% men, 8% women at the time. So any woman was good. I mean, we just were good because we weren't the guys. Sure. Right. And what he didn't tell me was he took my final project to WBAB in Babylon when I was 20 years old. And they offered me a job. Oh, incredible. Wow. And I was waitressing at a place called The Salty Dog. And I said, no yeah. thanks. I'm making a whole lot of money. I don't need, you know, to do that kind of work. And they said, we're talking about doing on-air work news. Yeah. And this is December of my junior year. So wow. now I've been rejected by Dayton. I've come back home. I've done this year here. And I said, I'll take the job. And then I thought, no, nope, I need to go away. And... University of Dayton contacted me and said, we screwed up. We put you in the School of Business. You were never supposed to take all those economics and math courses. Oh, wow. Yeah, which was an oh, wow to me because those were not my strengths. Whoa. So I decided to go back there. So I ended up in Dayton the second half of my junior year. So you turned down the job at BAB. In December. And I went out to Ohio. Back to Ohio, take two. Had a great time. Moved back into that house. Had a fabulous time. And I couldn't get on to the radio station. I thought, oh, and no, I'm gonna get on the radio station there because somebody in New York wants me. Wow. And those positions were filled. And so I ended up uh, at the end of the school year coming back and contacting somebody at VAB and saying, listen, if you still have that little part-time job, I'll take it. And they said, we have it because we haven't found anybody to work for you know, $2 an hour or whatever um, who has the voice and has the caliber that you do. And so I took it, and I never went back to Dayton to get my trunk full of sheets and butterfly towels. Oh, jeez. But it was an incredible stumbling block that became one of the greatest stepping stones of my life. Wow. Wow.
0: So did the internship at at BAB begin once you returned back, or was that the original? It wasn't an internship. It wasn't an internship. It was
2: part-time news. Okay. Oh, it wasn't an internship. They offered me a job doing... Weekend news at WBAB, and two afternoons a week I did some of their public service wow. stuff. Over wow, there wow, that's on the incredible. Wow. It was amazing. I mean, for me to be working in the business at the age of 20 on air, and then senior year I stayed in New York, I stayed on Long Island, I was living with my parents, and I went back to New York Institute of Technology. Wow. And I finished there.
0: Wow, incredible. And so when did you move to
2: WLIR? Um, I went from WBAB which had a very small news department. It was me, a part-time fellow named Sean Burke. Wow, that was a reach. And Joel Martin was the news director. But it was rock and roll radio. I knew there were limits to what we were doing. And back in the days before News 12, before there was this hyper-local, we're going to be your newspaper but on television or in radio, there were a couple of Long Island radio stations that did that job. WGBB in Merrick. WGSM in Huntington, you used to see their call letters on the building right at Route 110 in the Northern State Parkway. There's a building on the north That's side. of right. WGSM, That's WCTO, and then WALK in Patchogue. Yep. And I knew that I needed to learn more. And so I reached out to WGBB. And the news director there was Ed Grilly. And I brought him my audition tape. And he said to me, if I had a job, I'd hire you tomorrow. And I said, that's great. And that gave me license about once every six weeks. Not enough to be annoying. But I would call him about once every six weeks. And I would say, hey, just want you to know, I did a story about this. I went out and I covered that. I did this. I did that. And one day he said to me, I've just got to hire you so you stop calling me. And wow. that was when I went to GBB, and I really learned. It was serious. It was a 15-minute solo radio, news um, new show in the morning. Bill Whitney from the CBS radio network eventually sat next to me. Larry Kofsky from Crane's New York Business right. was there. Uh, Howard Liberman, who ended up on WINS and CNBC, maybe. Um, uh, it was a phenomenal, phenomenal group of men wow. and me. Wow. Seven of them,
0: one of one me. yeah. Blazing trails, as wow. always.
2: Blazing trails, as baby. As always.
0: So, W L I R. I want to talk about this iconic rock-turned-new-wave station and and how it influenced your career, because it was a big part of your career, right?
2: It was a huge part of my career, 1979 to 1983. Yeah. Um, I I mean, John Lennon was killed during that time. That's probably one of the largest news stories that we covered. Um, But my news director, Steve North, also known as my first work husband, um, Steve did a series on drunk driving. And it was the first New York State Associated Press Award for reporting on drunk driving, because things were changing. We were evolving. People hadn't been talking about that until then. You know, it used to be me. I know a lot of people who used to, uh, you know, if you got stopped by a cop— on the way home, no matter where you lived in the country, pull over and sleep it off. Or it, it sure. was different. The awareness across the line was not what the awareness is today. My kids are in their twenties, and then I have an older one in his thirties, and um, and they will not. Any of the three of them, they will not get in a car if somebody, you know, with, with somebody who's been drinking. There's always a designated driver, or there's Lyft or Uber or us. But right. um, you know, they're real smart. Yeah. So but it was a lot of fun too. I mean, we just interviewed so many rock stars. I was with B.B. King, you know, in New York City in this little this little dressing room where it was him and his guitar who was the greatest love of his life. And I thought at the time, you know, you don't know your living history when you're living it. That's yeah. right. What do they say that youth is wasted on the young? Yes. Yes. You know, so I, I didn't get it all, but it was a phenomenal, phenomenal time, um, I would rather, you heard me refer to my love of music before, I would much rather know about the musician than about the music. And that's why Steve and I made a good balance in the yeah. news department. I love to ask people about, um, you know, about their lives, about how they got to where they were. One day I was in the newsroom, and I did mornings, and Steve did afternoons. And I bent down to pick something up, and there was a big glass Wall, which led into the studio where the DJs were, and you so you could always see each other. And I leaned down to pick this up, and I stood up and said to myself, "I thought, um, God, who is that? That is the ugliest man I had ever seen." <laughs> and Steve happened to walk in and he said, "That's Frank Zappa." Oh man. Who was a nice guy? Yes. He was a little out there, but he was a nice guy. I would never have said that to his face. Yeah. Yeah. I have a
0: quote from Steve. So I read a great piece that you actually uh, referred me to that Steve North wrote about you. Really, really great piece. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of love there. I saw it. I saw it. He's
2: still my work husband. Yeah.
0: He said, during our time together, we interviewed politicians, newsmakers, and rock stars reported on the 1980 Democratic Convention and the shootings of the Pope, Ronald Reagan, and John Lennon hung out with Billy Joel and his band, and essentially had the time of our lives. It really seemed like that. I checked out Dare to Be Different, the documentary about WLIR. So it was people that grew up on Long Island. You know, LIR was, was legendary. legendary, it was legendary. Yeah. And so I watched that documentary, and the, the names in that documentary were incredible, who came through that station. Not just the people that worked there, but of course the musicians that came through the station you got to give me a rock story. You have to have a
2: good Joan Jett uh, and, and her manager, Kenny, all of a sudden one day showed up. Um, when, when we did the reunion, when we went to meet about this movie, Dare yep. to Be Different, we met with the producer. We were all sitting around in the basement of someplace. I don't know. And it was pretty typical for us to be in a basement. And um, we were all talking about who got mugged. And I was the only one who had never got mugged because I would arrive there at 4 in the morning, and it was near a troubled spot in Hempstead at that time, a place known for drugs. And you'd park in the parking lot, come inside the building um, on Hempstead Turnpike, Fulton Avenue, and you'd take the Mm. elevator to the 7th floor and run up to the 8th or take it to the 6th floor and run up to the 7th, to the penthouse, as we called it. And there weren't much penthouse about that place at all. It was incredible. Um, But anybody could essentially take the elevator up, and then walk up that final flight of stairs through the fire escape you know, entrance onto the roof. Right. And that's how you got up to LIR. And all of a sudden, one day, Joan Jettner, manager, Kenny, showed up. And we started playing their music at a time when other people wouldn't. Dennis McNamara was our program director. And Dennis, who is still a Long Islander, still involved in so much, Dennis just got it. He just had a nose for it. He put them on. I love rock and roll. And we, therefore, became their friends forever. Bono still talks about how WLIR would play his music when nobody else did. And so Dennis McNamara, this Long Island uh, DJ, disc jockey, is a hero to Bono and you too now. That's uh, crazy. Know, it's Right? right? <laughs> and it was crazy.
1: just every day for you. It, it wasn't was every day. It was just every day. It's not like you intentionally went in and said, we're going to have the courage to play Joan Jett." You played it because it was good music. And you had a nose for this good music. Uh,
2: I didn't have that nose. I've (laughs) got to give that to Dennis McNamara. Also, Rosie um, worked in our music department, and she worked doing some of our public relations and our, you know, marketing stuff. She had a great collection of music that she gave to Dennis one day and said, you really ought to listen to this stuff. It's kind of the next generation. It's the next wave. And that became a lot of the new wave stuff, which, by the way, for some traditional rock and roll lovers, was, you know, it was hard. It it was hard. A lot of the guys who play the classic vinyl are in serious now. You know, the Dennis sure. Elses. I mean, those guys who had been through LIR, and then they were over in Fordham's radio station for years. They've moved over to Sirius because they loved that music. So that classic rock and roll. But WLIR really did introduce this different way of thinking. And Dennis was ballsy. Yeah. Um, he went over to London, and he listened to what was being played there and then bought some albums and brought them back.
1: Oh. And then he had
2: the albums sent here before they were technically released here. And that's some of what we played. Sure. And that's how, like there are people who went to school in Jersey or in Staten Island, and if you were close enough to the water, if your dorm was close enough to the water, you could get the LIR signal, and they loved it. People would fight for those rooms. So it was a crazy, incredible time. I I was at the Democratic National Convention on the last night, Pictures weren't so big then because it was radio, and I wish I had this picture. I was the last person in Madison Square Garden waiting outside the CBS broadcast booth, and I interviewed Walter Cronkite after his last broadcast, and it was phenomenal, his last convention broadcast. And I knew that that was history, I was fully aware of that one. It it was incredible to be in that presence. Now that I think about it, he might have been my age.
0: That's incredible. Somewhere in that neighborhood. Um,
2: Probably not, Ugh. because at that point, I wasn't saving everything. I was doing it and moving on, and right, I was doing it right. and moving on. Steve May. Steve has everything. You know, <laughs> it's
0: it's interesting to hear about the dichotomy of the news aspect of LIR versus the music, because it was just known as a cult music station. Right. But being able to bring that news into it, which not only broadens the range of, of the station itself, but the content is a little more broken up. It's not just about the music. I always I'm so fascinated by radio and how it's grown over the years. And we've talked about how I'm a huge fan of Howard Stern as an interviewer. And I always hear his stories about radio back in the 70s and 80s, and how he would just jump from station to station. And it was always like, it was just, hey, I just wanna make 250 bucks a week. And it's just get on there, play records, shut your mouth, that's it. Mm -hmm. But he always tried to make it interesting. He always tried to bring new content into it. So when a station actually achieves that, that cult status, that's tough.
2: That's it was tough. amazing. We used to do something called mini close-ups. And, and you know, right. you asked how WLIR affected my career. I could not do a story about the consumer price index because nobody would care. Right. But I could do a story, and this is the kind of thing that I have taught my writers at News 12 for all these years. Don't do the consumer price index story. Nobody cares. But say, listen, that date this weekend could cost you four bucks more, which was a lot in 1979 or 1980. It's going to cost you more because meat's up, And the milk that could go in your coffee, and guess what? Beer too. And that's where I learned to make every story relational, working with that. And we would take these stories and we would mix them in with music. I mean, it was so fun. There, there was a lot of Monty Python in our mini close-up. Those were the recorded. Um, specials that we heard every single day. And they were so much fun. I'd go into the city. I happen to love Kenny Rankin. A lot of people don't know who he is, but he's got a certain kind of voice. I just loved Kenny Rankin. And I could go into the city and just interview him. I could make a phone call and meet, you know, almost anybody who I wanted to meet. And it was such an exciting way to grow up. It really was. All because somebody hired me back in the day.
0: right? And that that set up, you know, the experience that you took into TV eventually. What did you take from radio into television?
2: I think the people who work in radio first have an ease. You know, I, I'll look at young reporters sometimes, and or even young writers, and I'll see that, you know, they want to try and be a little bit like New York times or a little Walter cronkite or, or look grown up. Mm-hmm. You know, come across as grown-up. Sure. And what I learned very easily is that people want to talk about what they want to talk about. They want to talk about life. You know, yeah. we, it should be relatable. And that's really what I learned there is to be relatable. And that's how every story. You know, Elizabeth Hasagin said that. Um, News 12 did an incredible week of send-off. For me the last week that I was on the air there and that's one of the things that she said and when I was inducted into the um, Long Island Journalism Hall of Fame she said the same thing Carol will not let a story go unless it's relatable I just think it's so important you don't want to be bored right so what do you want me to tell you about do you want me to tell you about that um well the tax bill is going up 0.03 no you don't care about that hey guess what you could be paying thirty-seven more dollars a year, a month, just for this. And instead of spending that money on what you might want, that might be a night out with a That might be a night at the movies with your family. Yeah. People want to be able to relate. Sure, I, I believe in being real.
1: Yeah. People really want to identify with stories. They want to identify with how is this going to impact my life. Mm -hmm. They don't want to hear about data and statistics. They want to know how is this going to affect how I buy groceries for my family or what vacation we can go on together or what is this doing to my life. I think that's so important. Being relatable. Finding the story that's going to touch every
2: single viewer or listener, I think is just so important. That's yeah. the greatest thing that rock and roll radio gave me. It really was. Plus a lot of concerts. I used to go to concerts for work. I mean, it was amazing. incredible.
0: Yeah, well, it's, it's that authenticity. And so it's a real good crash course in authenticity. Yeah. You know, bringing it back to leadership for a minute. This is something that I've discovered over the years. You know, if I'm doing a consult with my company and I'm, let's say, uh, training a sales force at a uh, at an organization, and people ask me what that secret to sales is, it's just being yourself. You know, now that I've been on the stage for a few years and I do my TED talks and keynotes, and subsequently organizing a TEDx event with with uh, Jennifer, you know, you, when you train a speaker and and you see that it's sort of that contrived feeling up on stage, and they ask you, well, how do I get rid of that? you got to be yourself and so authenticity in leadership is what engages people people are not stupid they they know even if they don't know you they know the second you start talking who the real you is right right and when you don't sound like you and you're trying to sound like somebody else whether it's on a stage on the radio or on tv they get it Yeah. you know they see it and it's it's important that we learn to be our authentic selves
2: in order to create change, to do good things. And you know what's great about it? Once again, it's a big exhale. It's relaxing. Mm A lot of people said, in the kudos that came in the last few weeks that I was at News 12, a lot of people said, by the way, who she is on camera, who you see, that's who she is in everyday life. But you you don't have to turn it on and you don't have to turn it off. And I think it makes you a better you. That's the beauty of it. You know, it really does. It makes you a better person. So it works from both sides. It doesn't just make you a better anchor, a better salesperson. It makes you also a better you, a better person. And, and that's easy. I agree. I agree.
1: It could be exhausting trying to be somebody a, else. A somebody else. Yep. It could just be yep. physically exhausting. I would never be able to hold up two personas. What you get is what you get through and through. And I think that's
2: what people really see. What did I say when I came back in here from your bathroom just now? We took a quick break and I said, oh, by the way, you you don't have any more rolls of toilet paper in there because (laughs) it's real. Right. Because It's all family here. There you go. But it's all family everywhere if you let it be. Yes. Yes,
0: absolutely. Guys, I want to thank you for joining us this week with our special guest, Carol Silva, and our special guest co-host, Jennifer Muccioli this concludes part one of this episode 105 a Christmas Carol we recorded with this special guest for three hours and so we decided that turning this into a two-parter would probably be the best idea and it is an incredible episode I have heard it all I am editing this in post right now and telling you guys that you need to come back and check out episode 106, A Christmas Carol Part 2 because it is out of this world. You cannot miss it. And so we are skipping the usual outros today. We are skipping the moment of inspiration. We are skipping the big three because we're going to have those on Part 2 next week on episode 106. Make sure you come back. It's too important not to. Later, guys. Launch sequence terminated. Into the black hole. Thanks for listening to the Launchcast today. Please make sure to subscribe to this feed wherever podcasts are available. Follow me, George Andriopoulos, at Launchpad CEO on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And make sure to visit our website, guys, thelaunchcast.com. Looking forward to the next episode. See you soon, guys.